This is the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. I'm Aiden Flax-Clark. Last week here at the library, we opened a big new exhibit called You Say You Want a Revolution. It looks back at the counterculture of the 1960s and 70s and is part of a citywide initiative led by Carnegie Hall. Today, we're getting into that spirit on the podcast with a thoroughly entertaining and completely absurd tale from the life of Timothy Leary. It's the focus of a new book called The Most Dangerous Man in America, Timothy Leary, Richard Nixon, and the Hunt for the Fugitive King of LSD. Leary is, of course, the Harvard professor turned counterculture poster boy who President Richard Nixon actually called the most dangerous man in America. The book recounts how the guru of acid turned into an international fugitive. Its authors are Bill Munitaglio and Stephen L. Davis, a Penn Award-winning pair of Texans who spoke to me about the book recently over Skype from their respective homes in Austin and San Marcos. Bill and Steve told me that without the New York Public Library's archives, they probably couldn't have written this book. About seven years ago, the library acquired a huge collection of papers and other material belonging to Timothy Leary. The stuff that's in there is pretty wild. Letters from people like William Burroughs, Cary Grant, Charles Mingus, and G. Gordon Liddy. Papers that document everything from psychological research at Harvard to mushroom trips in California. And research materials about a biosphere, cryogenics, space colonies, and the internet. But before we get to all that and my chat with Bill and Steve, I've actually got a favor to ask you. I want to tell you that we just launched a survey about our podcast and its listeners. We want to know more about you, hear what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more of in the future. There's no Applebee's gift card at the end, but it's short and it'll really help us make the show better for you. To take it, go to nypl.org slash podcast survey, which is one word. Again, that's nypl.org slash podcast survey. All right. Here's my conversation with authors Bill Minnataglio and Steve Davis. Let me ask you a little bit about Tim Leary. He's arrested in California for, I think it's two roaches in his car, right? But, yes. Yep. But that's not the real reason that he's thrown in jail. Why was it? Because he's already a sort of counterculture icon at this point. Why was it that Nixon and the administration wanted him in jail quite so badly. Timothy Leary was uh, seen as a hero and as a, a role model for millions of kids. And, and of course, he's you know known for that phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out. And the government seemed to be at, at war against its own people. We had Kent State happening at this time, Jackson State. Um, you know, kids plucked at random and sent off to Vietnam to die. So there really was kind of these battles going on uh, in the streets and in the academy and in the halls of Congress. And Timothy Leary was seen really as, as a leader for the counterculture, as you know, one of their generals and um, leading this mind revolution to, to try to transform the United States from being what he and many others saw as a society devoted to greed and war and environmental destruction and um, transcend into becoming a society based on you know egalitarianism and, and peace and joy and love. And so that made Leary a target from the beginning. And, and of course, the fact that his sacraments that he used in service of his uh, ideology happened to have been illegal made him a very easy target. So Leary had you know continually uh, run into trouble with the law. Of course, earlier in the 1960s, he had this... Uh, large estate uh, uh, in upstate New York, outside of Millbrook, uh, where you know this became 
notorious and, and famous uh, a haven for psychedelic explorations. And um, there were, you know, a series of raids carried out against him at this Millbrook estate. And the first one was actually led by uh, G. Gordon Liddy, who, uh, along with a team of agents, surrounded the, the mansion and broke in and confiscated what they thought were, you know, huge amounts of I- illegal narcotics, which, of course, uh, turned out to be peat moss uh, kept by Larry's wife, Rosemary. And so those charges didn't stick, but, you know, Liddy kept coming back. He was very dogged. And actually, it was his efforts to demonize Tim Leary and to have him put in prison that brought Liddy to the attention of the Nixon administration to begin with. And Liddy was hired as an anti-drug warrior originally with with the Nixon administration. And, uh, and, and of course, eventually worked his way into Nixon's special operations team and, and gained his own notoriety in that regard. But... You know, Leary uh, was followed by police everywhere. You know, he was busted crossing uh, into the United States uh, at Laredo and, and had a trial there. And Leary, um, you know, he was he was not a meek uh, person or a meek prisoner. Uh, he was actually, you know, a fervent believer and um, these ideas that he held. And so he would challenge the government at each turn. And he actually challenged the federal uh, marijuana laws and won a unanimous decision in the Supreme Court in 1969, you know, Leary, the United States, and had some federal uh, anti-marijuana laws overturned as a result, which made him an even bigger target. So Leary also, uh, as somebody who did drugs continuously, was, you know, slightly sloppy at times in his personal habits, as he was that particular uh, evening uh, in his station wagon. Uh, when the police officer pulled up and apparently smelled marijuana smoke and, and found those two burned out roaches uh, in the ashtray. And, you know, that was all the government needed. You know, Leary actually at that time uh, had begun his campaign for governor of California, and he was running against the law and order governor who was in place at that time, a guy named Ronald Reagan. And um, I think I've heard of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it was it was very tempting for Reagan and, and Reagan's judges and everybody else in California to, to throw the book at, at Tim Leary. And um, one other thing I should say, you know, uh, Leary was with John Lennon and Yoko uh, when they were seeing Give Peace a Chance in that uh, hotel room in, in Montreal. And um, John Lennon actually wrote a, a campaign ditty for Tim Leary uh, as he was running for governor against Ronald Reagan. It was come together, join the party. And that later was recorded by the Beatles as come together. So, you know, you could see this real union of counterculture voices in opposition to uh, the governments, the sort of tyrannical, violence-prone governments. So, and once Leary was, you know, caught with those two joints, that was enough to for him to have, you know, maximum sentence imposed. And he was uh, sent to prison, given a, a sentence that, was expected to last up to 10 years. And, and this is a guy who, you know, was on the verge of turning 50, was used to great fame and adoring crowds. And suddenly he's, you know, locked away in this very remote uh, prison and cut off from everything that, that he believes in and everything that he wants to accomplish with his life. It's funny that we're recording this, you know, just a few days after recreational pot, you know, became legal in California to think, um, you know, just a couple decades ago. All it took was a couple roaches to potentially end your whole life <laughs> if you were the wrong person. 
Absolutely. And that's what made it so obvious to so many people that, that Timothy Leary was a political prisoner, you know, when he was sentenced to 10 years for having two roaches. And that was, uh, you know, those kinds of sentences were, were given to people who were seen as more troublesome, for sure. So he's in jail. He's up in somewhere in Northern California and through his lawyer and his wife starts trying to figure out how to escape. And the who later become known as the Weather Underground at that time, the Weathermen Underground, get involved in helping him get out. And can you talk about, Bill, why they got involved? Because they're not really sympathetic to his worldview. No, they're not, but they were very practical and uh, I suppose cunning as well. And the uh, they were they were on the run. Uh, the FBI had really begun an aggressive uh, counterterrorism movement around the country, and uh, people were being hounded. And the student revolutionaries that had had really started on college campuses, um, and a lot of them in in bigger urban centers. New York, Chicago, and uh, San Francisco, and L.A. They began uh, leaving campus. Some just by graduation, some by fleeing, and they were they were they were hiding. They were scattered around the country in in safe places uh, where they were beginning to uh, you know basically burrow deeper underground. And in some of the meetings, when they were uh, able to clandestinely gather and talk about the future, how to continue the revolution, how to continue, frankly, to overthrow uh, America with with a K in, in the spelling of America, that they uh, they said, what we really need to do is, is have a marriage of uh, dope and dynamite that, you know, apart from the hardcore student revolutionaries, people who were really taken uh, to, to violent action, that it might be a good idea to draw in the hippies, to draw in the people who were uh, really sort of lifestyle revolutionaries, people that were more interested in music, communal living, um, the people who had attended Woodstock. How do we draw them into being more politically active and joining the revolution? Uh, and the more the discussions revolved around that, that again, marriage of dope and dynamite, the more the dial spun to, to Timothy Leary. He was an older figure, um, an older man in, and really sort of the spiritual godfather of the, that kind of more cosmic and hippie side of the equation, extremely eloquent, um, very charismatic, handsome, you know, dashing even. And he had a lot, a lot of followers. People would come uh, from around the world to to seek him out. It, it's one of the reasons uh, John Lennon, as my good buddy Steve mentioned, uh, wrote the song "Come Together," you know, really in honor and, and in service to Timothy Leary initially. Um, so he had he had you know that side of the equation, and and the the uh, the Weather Underground basically said, and we we need to draw him in. We need to uh, to work with him. Leary uh, really wasn't involved in uh, in revolution. He was in, involved in the revolution of the mind, if you will, but but certainly not a, a, in terms of politics. He was talking about wanting to uh, to live somewhere else, to to colonize uh, another place, either on this planet or another one, where people could live uh, uh, more freely and openly, uh, harmoniously. And yeah, maybe guided in some way with the sacraments, particularly LSD. He really wasn't, uh, you know, a, a rigid 
revolutionary in, in the political sense of, of that term. And, and yeah, there he is. He's in a, a California prison uh, feeling that he's been set up with two marijuana roaches that perhaps were planted in his car, uh, but feeling, you know, I need to get out of here. What can I do? I, there's more work to be done. Um, and word filters uh, down to him through his, his attorneys and some friends that some other uh, quote, friends, fellow travelers, would like to help him escape from prison. Tim, uh, he had never really heard of the weathermen or the weather underground, um, except for an article or two that he might have read in some magazines in prison. But through his attorneys and, again, advisors, people who were coming to visit him, a plan was arranged, uh, a very careful plan, it turned out, to uh, to bust him out of prison, to... Uh, give Tim uh, sort of the coordinates uh, on, on uh, both how to get out and then where to, uh, to wait for a car that would pick him up uh, in the middle of the night on the side of a lonely California coastal highway and then ferry him off to uh, the next adventure in his life where he went deeper and deeper into the, into the embrace of student revolutionaries uh, within uh, really uh, days of, of breaking out of prison. He was having what essentially would be called the, the summit meeting of the counterculture, uh, the end all uh, summit meeting of all summit meetings. He was sitting on a mountaintop in the Northwest uh, portion of the United States meeting with uh, the leaders, the founders of the weather underground. And he was pretty gobsmacked <laughs> and had essentially saying, you know, how did I wind up here? Who are you people? And what's going to happen to me next? And this is Bernadine Dorn and, and Bill Ayers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Bernadine Dorn and, and Bill Ayers, who, uh, you know, are really in the pantheon of student revolution and, and you know, uh, rebellion against the United States in, in modern American history. I don't want to spoil too much of the escape story just because it's actually a really great read. Great. Thanks. And there's so many amazing details that I really encourage people to read. But the long and short of it is that he ends up in Algiers with Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers, another <laughs> seemingly to all parties involved strange turn of events that no one really expected. And ultimately nobody really seems to have wanted. But how did he end up there? Why did the weathermen ferry him to Algiers? What was in it for them? Eldridge Cleaver uh, was one of the great leaders of the Panthers, along with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and, and Cleaver's wife, Kathleen Cleaver. The Panthers, you know, uh, had, had come together in Oakland uh, as a force in opposition to uh, violence perpetrated by white racist cops in their communities. Worked a lot on, on self-education and uh, community policing programs and community resistance and uh, education for kids and health clinics and food and all of these things to really develop uh, a strong, separate sense of community and protection for that community. Um, the Panthers had this menacing aura that, that terrified many white people. You know, they had their black berets and their black jackets, and they were armed almost at all times. And Eldridge Cleaver was seen by many people as kind of the, the baddest of the Black Panthers. He had a extensive criminal record for many violent acts dating back to when he was a very young person. And he was involved in a shootout in Oakland that led to... Uh, 
some pretty serious uh, murder charges being filed against him. And at the same time this was going on, you know, Cleaver was a counterculture celebrity. He was invited to lecture at UC Berkeley and other places. Uh, he gave this great kind of amazing over-the-top speech in uh, Sacramento when Ronald Reagan was governor. And he basically, you know, challenged Ronald Reagan to a duel and said, you know, of Governor Reagan that, you know, he would, uh, that Reagan could pick his weapons, you know, it could be a gun, a stick, a knife. And if he picked a marshmallow, Eldridge Cleaver would beat Reagan to death with a marshmallow. <laughs> so, you know, this is kind of the rhetoric of the time. But after those murder charges, uh, Cleaver uh, jumped bail and, and fled. Um, and he ended up in Algeria, uh, where, you know, the Black Panthers were, were Muslims and they were socialists. And in Algeria, it was a socialist Muslim republic. At this time, you know, the United States did not have many friends around the world because of our long, aggressive conflict in Vietnam. And, you know, by this time, we had dropped more tonnage of bombs in this little country in Southeast Asia than all of the principles during World War II had dropped in total. So this is widely condemned around the world. And and somebody who was seen as a dissident or, you know, an escaped political prisoner for the United States uh, had a lot of places to go to. And um, Algeria did not recognize Richard Nixon's uh, administration as the legitimate representatives of the American people. And instead, Algeria decided to recognize the Black Panther Party as the legitimate representatives of the American people. So they offered Cleaver his own embassy, this you know, opulent, uh, beautiful district in the hills above Algiers with these gorgeous views of the Mediterranean. And some of uh, the other Black Panthers, uh, who also, many of them were you know, one step ahead of the law, uh, managed to escape to Algeria too and, and joined Cleaver to set up uh, this embassy, which was really seen as a place for the revolution uh, against Nixon in the United States. And so the reports that came back from Algeria were always, you know, glowing. The Black Panthers, Eldridge Cleaver was their minister of information. He was an extremely eloquent writer. You know, he wrote um, the seminal 1960s book, Soul on Ice. And, you know, one of the things we say in, in our book, or we point out is that Cleaver, as far as we know, was the only person to be simultaneously on the bestseller list and the FBI's most wanted list. <laughs> and so with these, this propaganda coming out, Algeria made it sound like a great haven and destination for the counterculture if, they, if people needed to leave the United States temporarily because they were too hot to sort of uh, recharge and renew and, and organize for the coming uh, assault. And so for Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers and the other leaders of the weather underground. Um, it seemed like uh, a place worth uh, sending Timothy Leary to. Um, for one thing, it would get him out of the country. For another thing, maybe it could help bring about that union of dope and dynamite that Bill was talking about a few moments ago. Um, and this is, I mean, I guess I would say that probably the Algiers section of the book sort of forms the centerpiece of the story since it is literally in the middle of the book and takes up quite a big chunk of it. But it's also just filled with so many insane details. It's another part I don't want to spoil too much because I think people should read it and just get it that way. Um, but maybe you could talk just a little bit about what you think the fundamental conflict between Eldridge Cleaver and Timothy Leary was, because it seems like a lot of it had to do with drugs. Yeah, it was it was an oil and water uh, mix. You had uh, 
Timothy Leary, who you know had been described to to us, and as really having the the charm of the Irish, the kind of guy that if you uh, rolled into an Irish pub, you'd strike up a conversation with, and and he'd be very merry and engaged with you, and and funny and. You might even have different politics, but you'd have a pint of beer and you'd have a big laugh at the end of the day. Um, I had the good fortune of of hanging out with uh, Tim Leary in the early 80s and, and sharing some beers with him. So I could testify to that kind of experience. But I can only imagine what it must have been like for a guy like Tim Leary, who was really committed as well to this sort of spiritual revolution to suddenly uh, be – uh, you know, airlifted and then parachuted down into the middle of this hardcore revolutionary outpost with a lot of wary Black Panthers who were skeptical of of everyone, presuming that everyone was a spy, everyone had been sent by uh, J. Edgar Hoover or Nixon in some way to break them down, bring them back, and you know, hold them to uh, to account for uh, murder charges, as Steve said. And, revolutionary acts, the killing of policemen across the country. Um, so here comes Timothy Leary. I was clicking his heels um, and, and and arriving, he's constantly uh, with a smile on his face and talking about peace, love, understanding, and, and the, uh, the palliative and therapeutic powers of LSD. It just didn't jibe with this sort of uh, gunmetal gray disposition that the Black Panthers had in, in North Africa. And and this sort of a sense that, yeah, they really were uh, building an embassy. They were building their own country and uh, within a country. And this was going to be the bastion. This was going to be the place where revolution, the final revolution to overthrow the Nixon regime was going to uh, uh, be uncorked, you know, planned and unleashed. Uh, and I, it's not that Tim uh, showing up that he was viewed as a court jester, but I think in time he was felt to be maybe uh, you know less politically rigid than everybody else. Uh, and Tim's eyes were just getting wide. He was looking around at Eldridge Cleaver and the uh, again the hardcore uh, revolutionaries who were there, and they were constantly carrying weapons, as Steve noted. And uh, talking uh, in in this severe way about their admiration for the leaders of North Korea uh, and other, uh, you know, uh, communist uh, outposts, Tim just simply didn't fit in as a personality. And it might be as basic as that. He wanted to have fun. He believed in the sort of the the merry prankster uh, solutions to life that you could accomplish more with humor, with love, understanding, and again, maybe with the you know, the spirit guide uh, use of hallucinogenics. Um, you know, when they were sitting around um, in the embassy, Tim couldn't help but notice how harsh some of the Black Panthers were, were treating uh, the women who were there, and that there was a sense of inequality uh, emerging, and and that you know rubbed against him. In in time, what really happened, and not to give away the plot of the story, but Tim was essentially held hostage in the same way that he might have been held hostage back in America. The Panthers called it Babylon, you know, back in Babylon. Uh, Tim had been in prison, and over time in North Africa, he felt that he was imprisoned. He couldn't think the things that he really wanted to think, or at least express them, uh, and then, um, you know, push forward his own 
kind of revolution, which was a, a spiritual revolution. He tried to put a gloss on it when he when he was essentially ordered uh, by the by the weatherman to go to North Africa and, and told, you know, this is really your your one way ticket out of the United States. We're sending you to North Africa. He was initially alarmed, but tried to make peace with it, saying that maybe in uh, in Algeria he could create some sort of a uh, a Woodstock version of Athens, uh, a place of enlightened discourse, a, a place where other spiritual leaders would come to and they would talk about, uh, you know, things that today almost seem, um, oh, I don't know, quaint. Uh, but again, universal love, harmony, a community. Uh, and then again, you know, exploring, doing further, deeper research into the, the power of, of drugs uh, to, uh, to heal the world, heal the mind. It's when you say that, it just sounds totally insane that he would think that. I mean, and he seems like pretty quickly disabuse himself of that notion that in a Muslim country welcoming in embassies for the Black Panthers in North Korea, that he was going to set up some sort of, you know, paradise of universal harmony and free love and LSD. It's like kind of absurd. <laughs> it's absurd and then uh at the same time it's so perfectly fitting if anything timothy leary was an eternal optimist when you when you do your you know you kind of your forensic analysis of his life and you lay out all these moments on a table and you look at the the fact that he was hounded by g gordon liddy who was the howling wolf of the uh, of the uh you know nixon's uh watergate team uh, that he was set up on drug charges, that he was essentially uh, 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 made the poster child for the drug, uh, the war on drugs in the United States and and was destined, uh, it seemed, to be put away uh, for the rest of his life in prison. Uh, that all of these forces were stacked against him. He always remained very, very buoyant. Just when the, you know, the everything seems to be falling down around him, he suddenly pops up again like a cork in a raging river. So I, I think he retained, you know, some sense of optimism even when he uh, knew what was going on. Uh, that that the the things that others of us might consider paranoia <laughs> were actually really true. Uh, that there really were conspiracies. That there really were people talking about him. There really were people trying to use him as a pawn uh, in a big game. He retained some sense of. Uh, and resiliency and, and buoyancy. And I, I might say at the end of the day, you know, when, when, when we finished the book, it really did, did seem as if uh, an unlikely figure, Tim Leary, really was a pawn with these really powerful forces. The president of the United States uh, in the White House was talking about Tim Leary with his aides and how to get him, how to use him. Um, Deep underground in the U.S., student revolutionaries were saying the same thing. The Black Panthers were trying to figure out, what can we get out of this guy? How can we use him as leverage? How can we actually use him in in an international uh, war with the United States? Yeah, and and in speaking of being used, it actually brings me to the next uh, group that I wanted to ask you about because one of the things that uh, we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about the Weather Underground is that it sounded like they also wanted to help Leary get out of prison because they needed some money. And there was a group who is sort of all over this book and also nowhere because the members of it are rarely seen called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love who seem like some kind of international drug syndicate that have endless supplies of cash and drugs to share with people. 
Um, they helped fund him getting out of prison, and they keep showing up throughout the book. It sort of seems like when he needs an infusion, there they are just like dropping off a box of acid or, you know, <laughs> a bag of cash or whatever. Um, and I, I had never heard of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. I really didn't know anything about them, and they seem fascinating. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about them, what their part was in this story, how they were connected to him, why they kept helping him. Those were a, a bunch of guys that I, I wish I had known personally, maybe not to uh, get involved uh, with what they were doing, but just to study them, be around them, and and then go sur- surfing with them. Uh, I'll explain I'll explain what I mean. But they were a, a group of uh, you know kids, basically, who grew up in 1950s America in Southern California, who kind of drifted off uh, during their high school years into some low-level criminality and uh, things that seem really benign today. They would steal hubcaps and uh, uh, draw graffiti and uh, skip school um, and go surfing. Really uh, probably listening to the Beach Boys a lot back in the day in the early 60s. As the 60s you know, blossomed and we went from this sort of black and white world of the 1950s to the really uh, colorized uh, world of, of the 60s and and, and uh, you know the Beatles stopped playing three chords and began experimenting with more interesting forms of music or more complex forms of music these guys in Southern California began discovering uh, drugs and particularly LSD and by doing some acid and tripping and going surfing and, and maybe connecting to things that uh, had beyond been beyond their ken or their their realm of understanding earlier they discovered a guy named timothy leary they began reading about him in rolling stone they began uh, uh trying to communicate with him and it, it sounds uh, almost cultish but in their little band their little brotherhood of you know high school friends people that were growing up by the way this is in the kind of the long beach california area uh, surfing together, hanging out together, they began talking more and more about their uh, admiration for this guy named Timothy Leary, who uh, was preaching the powers of uh, psychedelic exploration, but as well the powers of eternal love. They decided to call themselves the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. It sounds almost again like a cliche. They opened up uh, something called the Mystical Arts Bookstore. In, in Long Beach, uh, you can almost imagine the kind of place that you would go in. There'd be beaded curtains, uh, big clouds of incense. There was a bookstore when I grew up in L.A. that I think was a holdover from that called the Bodhi Tree that reminds it's, me of what you're describing. <laughs> it was really, uh, in many ways, meant to be a, a place to honor Timothy Leary. and certainly a place when he came uh, to Southern California that he was welcome to. Uh, they, uh, It's a heavy, loaded word. Uh, but so I'll, I'll use it with a lowercase w. They worshipped Timothy Leary. They admired him to a, to an enormous degree and began thinking that he held the key to something that was a hell of a lot more interesting than 1950s Southern California that they had grown up in. That was communal living, free love, you know, the ability to uh, turn on and tune out whenever you really wanted to. Uh, and they, they were uh, living communally initially um, – in the Southern California area in the cities, and then uh, were able to secure some land uh, out in the hills uh, of, of, of Southern California and uh, lived on a ranch where Tim uh, was invited to come stay and seek refuge. While they were 
sort of just banding together, trying to figure out how to survive, how to, uh, to kind of drop out. They did decide they needed to fund, you know, their adventures and then also fund their mission to, um, turn on everybody in the United States. In other words, to have everybody in the U.S. do some LSD and maybe achieve enlightenment. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love began uh, manufacturing drugs, and particularly in terms of a concern for the DEA and the FBI and the, the Nixon administration, they began importing, importing drugs, uh, particularly from Afghanistan. They were bringing in a lot, a lot of hashish, uh, converting it to hash oil. Uh, they were, again, manufacturing LSD. They were into some pretty interesting things, including uh, hiring airplanes and flying over rock festivals in California and then just opening up the uh, the cargo uh, doors and, and dropping down millions of hits of orange sunshine acid on people that were there to watch rock shows. So they had, they had their own plan. Uh, they were uh, as as active in their way, their countercultural way, as the as the weather uh, the weathermen had been. Tim loved the attention from them. He loved the fact that they were taking him seriously, and he also, I think, really liked the fact that they had an action plan. They really did want to turn on the world, and I think that appealed to him. And they had a lot of money. There, there was some pretty good dough, apparently, and in, in importing hash from Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, you know, it it, it seems. Uh, you know, again, probably unlikely now. You know, we were talking earlier about how the laws are obviously changing all around the country, and you know, most notably recently in California as it regards marijuana. I could sit and uh, uh, make a pretty good argument, I think, for the fact that none of the uh, legalization that we're seeing in the United States related to marijuana laws, drug laws, now it wouldn't have happened without Timothy Leary. It just wouldn't have happened. He set in motion a, a, a cultural sea change. And it goes all the way back to these guys with, with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who, by the way, at one point uh, were identified as the biggest drug cartel uh, in U.S. history, maybe in world history, you know, by government, by U.S. officials, who then went a step further and said, oh, by the way, Tim Leary is head of that drug cartel. It was kind of a surprise to Tim, I think, when, when he began hearing that he was uh, the head of a giant drug cartel. But he, was, <laughs> he, he was certainly associated with them. And to get to your great question, he he was really supported by them. They had a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars at their disposal. Uh, they had safe houses and they had really uh, interesting ways of importing drugs. They would hollow out surfboards and stuff them with with hash and, and acid. Uh, they would, uh, you know, hollow out Jeeps and, yeah, you know, of course, why not a VW bus? And, you know, have drugs planted all around, uh, the, you know, the base of the bus or the inner workings of a, of a bus and have them imported. Again, today, it seems, you know, really unlikely that any of this could happen. But but rules were, were looser then and the checkpoints were easier to break through. They had boats that were bringing in uh, dope into Hawaii as, a, uh, as a, a way that eventually get it to the mainland. So the point is that they had a lot, a lot of money. And Tim could always count on them uh, in his life, which seemed to be a, a mix of things that were not constant. <laughs> Tim's life was was really like a you know a giant pinball machine with Tim as the pinball just boinging around erratically. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love remained rather faithful to him. 
and though they went deeper underground, they were still importing and, and exporting and, and manufacturing a lot of drugs. And they uh, had gone into their own hideouts in the same way that the the weather underground had gone, uh, you know, deeper underground. Some members of the uh, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, particularly, went out to Hawaii, some really remote areas there, continued to do business, but laid low, a little bit off the radar. Uh, and the the story is that uh, one of them uh, went to the other members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and said, "We need to raise money." to support Tim. We need to get together a big sum of cash that we can give to the Weather Underground and then even by extension later on to the Black Panthers to basically keep our our mentor, our guru, our hero, our spiritual leader free so that the you know, the mission could go on. There are a number of people who appear in this book who are still alive. And I know that you spoke to some of them because you mentioned them in the acknowledgments, but I, I wonder if you could tell me about who among this group who's still living that you were able to talk with and get their side of the story? Bill and I like to do a lot of really deep historical research. And I've found, you know, working in archives for years and years and years that the record that you find in archives is actually uh, far superior to uh, interviews that are done years or decades later because people who uh, speak in those interviews tend to have memories clouded by self-regard or covering their ass or years of drug use (laughs) years of drug use can do it too certainly and so what's great about the archives is that you get those really contemporaneous documents and you're as close to that moment in time as possible and of course as you've seen from reading this book that's what we want the reader to be you know uh, in that kind of crackling immediacy of the moment as you go through this narrative with tim and as a reader you don't really know much more than he does about where he is and what's happening and sort of recaptures the excitement of that time. So, but at at the same time, we also benefited from a number of firsthand observers who wrote contemporaneous reports, you know, that appeared in various parts of the underground press or things like that. But even with all of that, there were still um, areas of, of mystery about what exactly happened with Tim Leary. I think the most interesting person I was able to talk to is somebody who uh, was working for the United States government at the embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Which and is where Tim Leary was finally apprehended. This is James Sinner, uh, S-E-N-N-E-R, who was a really interesting guy who had come up through college at the time of the bombings and the shutdowns of campus. And he was you know, basically a pro-American guy from a working class family who you know, saw that the country sure had problems, but it was still a great place to live and offered the best opportunities and so forth. And worked himself through school, uh, got a law degree, and then got hired, you know, for the Foreign Service and um, found himself as a junior officer there in the embassy. And James Center was able to actually kind of clear up a lot of the confusion about how Timothy Leary got captured. Um, this has been a controversy that's uh, the circumstances of his capture has been a controversy that's roiled the counterculture for decades now. There are people who fervently believe that, that Tim Leary's uh, young consort at the time, uh, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, had been a CIA agent who had led Tim you know, into this uh, capture, into this ambush. And there are you know, various other theories as to why he was eventually captured. And 
James Sinner and what he was able to share with us combined with the other documentation we were able to find helped sort of complete the picture. The reason we're talking other than the fact that you wrote this fantastic book is that the New York Public Library is home to Timothy Leary's archives. So I know you did work in a number of archives, but could you talk a little bit about what's in the archives, you know, what surprises you discovered there? I will say that without the archive at the New York Public Library, this book would not have been done. It just would not have been possible to write it. And when Bill and I were just looking at this, the amazing outlines of this story and knowing that it was a hell of a amazing tale that would reveal so much about the counterculture and the Nixon administration and everything else about America and at that era, you know, the only reason we were able to move forward with it is because we knew that the New York Public Library had acquired Timothy Leary's archive. That was the, the foundation for us, the cornerstone for the book that we went on to write. You know, Bill and I found literally thousands of pages that we were able to use of material. And I just want to mention one one of those things here because it it tells you a lot about how our government still handles information. When we began working on this book, we uh, contacted the FBI and asked for, uh, you know, we filed our FOIA request, their Freedom of Information Act request for, for their files on Timothy Leary. After many months, we got a response saying that, that they didn't have them. They would sent them to the National Archives. And when we contacted the National Archives, we were told various other things. There's a long paper trail of uh, people putting us off trying to get any of this material. And in fact, after three years of working on the book, we never received a single document from the federal government uh, of Timothy Leary's FBI files or CIA files or anything else like that. But as it turns out, Tim himself had made that request earlier on. He had gone through this, a lot of the same legal hassles and was finally able to get a good chunk of his FBI files and CIA, State Department files and things like that. And that stuff is all just sitting there beautifully uh, cataloged and and in those acid-free boxes, well-preserved. So, you know, I would say Newark Public Library made things available. Government files available that the government itself would not make available to us. Mm. So that was a huge help for us. I'll, I'll just talk about something a little different. You know, the actual content, the material that we were holding in our hands, it's a miracle that it was there in the first place. Given all of the things that we wrote about in our book, and, and mind you, we, we concentrated our story on a 28-month time period, uh, essentially beginning with this counterculture figure's escape from prison and then his capture in, in Afghanistan 28 months later. What you all have in, in the library is, is the scope of Tim's life that had been maintained um, by his own archivist. Um, Two, two guys, Michael Horowitz and Robert Barker, who years ago, years ago, decades ago, um, in, in, you know, back to the 60s, had decided, much like members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, they had decided that they really um, thought Timothy Leary was an important guy and somebody that needed to be uh, chronicled, that uh, things he was saying, things he was writing needed to be archived. And these were really interesting uh, folks. We dedicated our book in part to them because, man, were they doing it 
uh, on a wing and a prayer and, and sort of making some things up as they went along as, as they began accumulating and archiving and processing uh, Leary's papers. And I mean, everything that, that was related to Leary, um, you know, indictments lodged against him, court records, uh, tons and tons, thousands and thousands of page, pages of personal correspondence. Uh, they were keeping it in as beautiful uh, and secure a fashion as you could, considering they were doing a lot of it out of their apartments out in California and doing it, frankly, while on the run and while the FBI wanted to get those papers from them as, you know, quote, evidence against Leary. So these are what what's in the library is just beautiful in, in many ways when you consider it, it the history yeah. of how those papers even uh, wound up there for us to to kind of parse and look through. And then beyond that, there's just the facade, the excitement of picking up uh, uh, you know, a folder or an envelope and, and looking at it and and then realizing that this was correspondence uh, from John Lennon to Tim Leary. And yeah, stuff that the, the government, I suppose, was hiding from us in 2018 uh, was very publicly available in the New York Public Library. I mean, you know, we're we're pretty into the free flow of information over here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a good thing. So I have one last question that I want to ask both of you, which is that Timothy Leary, I think in history and and also in your book, at times seems like he was a visionary, at other times like he was a total madman, at other times like he was an opportunistic charlatan. I'm curious to hear your opinion on that. Hopefully I could trick Steve into talking about uh, our theory of Tim being the, the coyote trickster. Um, but, uh, but, but what I'll say is maybe somewhat the same thing, uh, as a, a former Catholic altar boy, uh, and, and a product of a fine Catholic education <laughs> that we used to, uh, hear about a figure called the Holy fool and someone who, uh, was possessed with the spirit, uh, and then, uh, wanted to spread it in some way. And, you don't get uh, a Dostoevsky novel without one holy fool. Well, there you go. <laughs> and uh, Tim was uh, a proselytizer. He was a preacher. He was an evangelist. And uh, he was uh, tilting at windmills. You can, we can go on and on and on and on. But I I think at the end of the day, what made him uh, important was that he, he did have a vision and he stayed true to it uh, right until the end. It's you know kind of amazing to me, uh, and you know maybe metaphorically uh, interesting that he wanted to have his his ashes launched to outer space. And by the way, his ashes were launched to outer space along with the ashes of Gene Roddenberry, the the guy who invented uh, Star Trek. <laughs> that that the story goes that when they were sent out to outer space in in some capsule, the capsule on re-entry into Earth's orbit in some way uh, blew up. And Tim's believers say that his ashes were scattered around the planet. Uh, and that right now, uh, for all I know, uh, some of us are, are ingesting Tim or, <laughs> or having Tim settle on our shoulders in some way. Uh, but he really, really was influential. Uh, he might not have known uh, in the moment that he was as influential as he was. But uh, the things that that he inspired, uh, rightly or wrongly, are still with us today. You know, I grew up on on the hills of the '60s, and always felt like I just missed out on 
one of the greatest, most exciting periods of American history, you know. And when you learn about that and you look back at that, you see that Tim Leary is one of the great heroes of that time among the counterculture and just revered by millions of people. And, you know, you don't come across people like that that often really in life or in history um, who live such outsized lives and are so malleable at, at the same time. And, you know, for us here in the Southwest, really, the best way we were able to get a handle on Tim is, uh, is thinking of him as the, the Native Americans' uh, mythological figure, the, the coyote trickster, you know, this uh, animal who is, as Bill mentioned, something of a holy fool. Um, you know, the coyote is credited with uh, gone, having gone into the heavens and stolen fire from the gods and you know, brought it back down to earth. Um, so the coyote does these noble things, but at the same time, the coyote's apt to set his own paws on fire or his own tail on fire, or, you know, to get himself in these terrible situations where he has to, uh, he's completely helpless and has to, to beg for help and then walks away and just has 100% of his confidence back again. For a lot of us, you know, we operate in, in, in a world where we tend to have a sense of and especially for those of us who had Catholic educations like Bill and I had, you know, my share of Sunday school, you have, you know, the, the guilt and the conscience and all of these things that, you know, sort of anchor you uh, in your social relationships. And Tim seems kind of just to transcend that. And, you know, the government uh, claim was that he was you know, perhaps psychopathic. And I think the biographer he had may have made that claim too. But, you know, in, in fact, Tim was not because he felt, you know, love and affection and a sense of community and had wonderful relationships with so many people where he was as giving and caring as, as anybody could be. So it wasn't that exactly. He just sort of operated in a different plane uh, throughout his life. And this was even before the acid, but certainly perhaps transformed to a greater degree as a result of all the LSD he had taken too. Well, I, I really can't tell you enough how much I I just tore through this book. I really enjoyed reading it. I've been reading a lot of very serious books. It seems like there's a very serious mood in the type of nonfiction that's being written. This has a sort of comic buoyancy to it that I really appreciated. Super. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks for reading and, and thanks for spending so much time with us. All right, that's the show. If you live in New York, you can get The Most Dangerous Man in America from one of our local NYPL branches. And you can read other of Bill and Steve's books on our Simply E app. And if you're not in New York, go give your local public library brand some love and look for the book there. As always, thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen.